right, we're in Romans chapter 3, verse 1. The title of the sermon today is, Who Escapes Judgment, Part 3. It's a, it's a trilogy. Who Escapes Judgment, Part 3. The Apostle Paul is writing in the book of Romans, and he's trying to prepare us for, one, for the most important moment in our existence, the moment when we'll be evaluated if we go to heaven or if we go to hell. Uh, it's, it's the ultimate moment of testing. It's the ultimate evaluation. Which way are you going? And are you ready for that? Uh, last week, my daughter, Ellie, came to me. She's a junior in high school over at Shepherd, And she said, Dad, I have to build a bridge for science class. I have to build it out of toothpicks. Will you help me? And I'm like, sure. So we went and bought the toothpicks, and we bought the wood glue, and there we were with a box of toothpicks and a bunch of wood glue, and I was like, I don't know how to do this, so I googled it, and it turns out there's many different designs you can choose from when you build a bridge out of toothpicks. Here's a picture of the different designs that are out there, and we looked through those, and I was like, all right, we gotta, we gotta pick one, and so, and there were all these rules you had to follow, and so we decided to go with the Warren Truss bridge design, double intersection. Anybody familiar with that? Oh, that's the one we picked. Here's the next picture of us getting to work. We laid it all out and we started figuring out what different pieces we would have to make. So she brought it to school and it, it took days and we didn't think it was going to work right. And, and then we, and it wasn't ready. And then she got a snow day. So she got a bonus day to finish the bridge. So she brought it in the next day. And you know what they do? They attach weights to this little poor toothpick bridge and they try and snap it in half. And then they weigh, they measure how much it could hold versus how much it weighs, and then there's the grading scale. So Ellie got home from school, and I said, how did it, actually, no, she was still at school, and she texted me, and she said, our bridge was best in my class. I was like, wow. <laughs> and then she said, but a lot of other students are bringing in bridges today and tomorrow. So at the end of the second day, guess what I wanted to know? Was it the best bridge of them all, right? And she said, Dad, there was one bridge that did better, but our bridge came in second place. And the teacher said, can I keep this bridge to show students next year? And I was like, yes, he can. Yes, he can. <laughs> so we made a second place bridge. It, it held like 300 times its weight or something. It was, it was incredible. It passed the test. She got an A and the teacher wanted to hold on to it. I didn't even take a picture of it because I thought it was coming back. I wanted to show you a picture of it because I'm so excited about it. So I just went online and I found the bridge that most closely resembled the bridge that we made. So here's just an idea of what we made. Just so, it's the way I remember it, just so you can have a visual. It's so exciting when the test comes and you get an A. After all the measurements happen and all the grading happens, you get an A. We are all preparing for the ultimate test, heaven or hell. When you're standing there, what is God going to evaluate you by? What are the rules? How can I pass? How does God test a life? And it's too late when you're in front of his throne to figure it out then. Who escapes judgment and how do we know if we will escape judgment and pass? Let's pray and then we'll find out together. Father, we ask that you would help us to prepare for that moment, the moment when we will all stand before our Creator, our Maker, and give an account for our lives. Show us how to be ready and confident. Show us, Lord, how to know that we're going to heaven. We pray this in your name. Amen. Here we are in Romans chapter 3, verse 8. 
The Apostle Paul is the author. The church, the Christian church in Rome is the audience. And what is he doing here? He is, he is assessing the moral situation of, of man, of the world, and trying to find out where the problem is. We've covered a lot of ground, but reading on here in chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Why would he ask that question? It's because Christianity grew out of the Jewish faith. Jesus showed up and fulfilled the Old Testament. But now all of the Jews are like, are you bringing us a new gospel? Are you bringing us a new law? Are you pushing Moses aside? Are you pushing Abraham aside and replacing him with this carpenter? So Paul has to defend the faith here. He says, what, what advantage is there to being a Jew? Where's the value of circumcision? What's our place in all this? Well, much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. He's, he's addressing his critics here. He's, he's quoting them and then responding to them. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So now he begins to quote the Old Testament here. This is David who said this in Psalm 51.4. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So like a few times here, he quotes a critic and responds to it. Quotes a critic and responds to it. Here's the overall question, though. Number one, jot this down. Who will God accept into heaven? Am I on the right plan? How has God's plan changed with the arrival of Jesus Christ? Who will God accept into heaven? There are several groups here that the Apostle Paul is talking to, but he's predominantly thinking of the Jewish believer in the Old Testament who's doing their very best to keep the law, and they think they're going to get to heaven because of their achievement. That's the person who keeps objecting to what Paul is now teaching about Jesus and grace. Don't you want to know that you're going to heaven? Don't you want to know that? When my son Jared was eight, out of nowhere, my eight-year-old son said this, Dad, when I die, am I going to be all gold and shiny? Dad, when I die, am I going to be all gold and shiny? Don't you want to know that? Am I going to heaven? The Apostle Paul here, the Bible, starts talking about the role of the Jews. And the first thing he shows here is this. Write this down. It has nothing to do with race, religion, or nationality. Race, religion, or nationality. He says, what advantage has the Jew? What value is circumcision? He's talking about what it means to be Jewish. And he says, much in every way. And then he starts listing those benefits. But then he goes on to say that these things can't save you. Being a Jew, having the law, knowing the truth about God... A benefit is not you're saved by the law or by being Jewish. All of those things point to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's nailing this down. It has nothing to do with race, religion, or nationality. This is kind of Israel 101. Who are the Jews and why are they special? It was 2000 BC when God called Abraham to go to a place where God would show him. 
God told Abraham he would give him a son. Through that son, there would be disciples as numerous as the stars uh, in the sky and the sand on the seashore. That's 2000 BC. God called Abraham to go. He didn't have this promised child until he was like 100 years old. There's a miracle baby. Christmas is all about a miracle baby, right? Abraham got the world ready for Jesus to come. And then Abraham had Isaac. And God gave Abraham the covenant which involves circumcision. He told him, I want you to circumcise your sons to show that they have been set apart for me, marked physically as mine. That followed through to, to Moses, and as, as the nation of Israel was born out of Egypt, circumcision was one mark of being Jewish. It was a national mark, but it was also a spiritual mark of belonging to God. So that's what it means when it talks about being Jewish and circumcision and all of that. The problem is this. John MacArthur puts it well. Being a physical descendant of Abraham didn't qualify them as spiritual descendants of Abraham. Abraham is the father of all who believe. And some Jews were Jews outwardly, but they didn't have faith in the heart. Paul's making a distinction between them. In John 5.39, Jesus says, You look into the Old Testament thinking that you're saved by the Scriptures, but they speak of me. They speak of me. So it's all about a person, and many of the Jews were missing that. Paul is being accused of being a traitor here, right? Why? Because he's suggesting that the Jews are just as sinful as those Gentiles. <gasps> How dare he? We're better than them? We're born better than them? Our blood is better than them? Our heritage is better than them? And we're going to have it because we're Jewish. And Paul's like, no, false. And this is a warning to us that if you think that you're going to heaven because of your family or your denomination or your ethnicity or your education, if you think God's impressed with you because of your athleticism, your pride is blinding you to your true need. Nothing in your life convinces God that you belong in heaven. Nothing you do. It has nothing to do with race, religion, or nationality. Who will go to heaven? Here's the next one. Jot this down. Everyone is accountable to the law given to Israel. So the Israelites' first objection is, you're turning on your nation. And he's like, no, I'm not. Our nation has a great purpose, but being Jewish doesn't save you. And then they're like, you're turning on our Bible. You're saying the Old Testament didn't come true. Now he responds to this. He says in verse 2, much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The Old Testament is the word of God. God wrote a book. God wrote a book. And Paul is not throwing it out. He's not saying, Old Testament, canceled. New Testament, here. The Old Testament predicted what would happen in the New. So the Jews are like, oh, you're just throwing our book out the window. No, I'm not. He said, we've been entrusted with the oracles of God. And this is how God speaks. How does God speak to you? Sometimes people are confused by this. They see something in nature. A butterfly flew past my window and I knew it was God telling me something. No, it wasn't. The butterfly was hungry. I mean, sometimes people want a sign from heaven. And God wrote a book. That's how he talks to us, is through his book. Reading your Bible is reading God's lips. This is how you know what God's will is. And Paul upholds the Old Testament as the oracles of God. And he reassures his critics that everyone will be held accountable to the law given to Israel. In uh, Psalm 116, uh, he quotes this here. Actually, let me read on in verse 5. He says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say that God is unrighteous? Unrighteous? 
Um, look back at verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So if the Jews blew it, right, rejected Christ, does that mean God's promises are all over? No. By no means. He says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And prevail when you are judged. So he begins a long series of quoting the Old Testament here. Um, and he's, he's uh, quoting Psalm 116. Uh, he, he quotes Psalm 51.4. Um, and, and so all of this is him reaching back into the Old Testament to show us what God's word really is. And wow, what we learn about God. We are held accountable to his law. And his law doesn't change based on how the people respond to it. His law is still in full force. And nothing the Israelites did or could do in the Old or the New Testament broke that God is going to hold people accountable to his law. He's reassuring them that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. When he says here, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, that's where he gets that from, Psalm 116, 11. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel like, I'm surrounded by liars. No one tells the truth. Humanity is corrupt. But that doesn't mean God is corrupt. God is true. And then he quotes David, and you know the story of David, and David sinned big time in the story with Bathsheba. He took another man's wife, murdered the guy. What kind of a king is this? This is a man after God's own heart. And when David was caught and he knew that he was supposed to be killed for his sin, he said, Lord, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. He knew. He knew that he had sinned against heaven. David knew that he had sinned against heaven. All sin is vertical. All sin offends God. And someone once said, you can't break God's law a little. Like a, like a sheet of glass, when you throw a rock at it, it strikes one point, but the whole pane breaks. God's word is like glass. You can't break it a little. And if you break it in one part, you break the whole thing. Paul is saying something that's great news. Who is God? Great news. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. If you literally are surrounded by, by nothing but liars, if everyone in this world becomes nothing but they lie all the time, all day long, God would still be true. That's great news. That God is faithful. Hey, listen, this is something to celebrate. All of God's promises will come true in your life. God never lies. All of his promises will come true in your life. God never lies. That's something to celebrate. That's great news. But there's bad news. All of God's punishments will come true in your life also. His judgment is sure to come. So Paul is nailing these things down again. Everyone's accountable to the law given to Israel. Nothing of that has changed. David knew it. So who will God accept into heaven? Well, it has nothing to do with race, religion, nationality. Everyone is accountable to the law given to Israel. God will prove faithful as judge. Jot this down. God will judge everyone without partiality. So he says in verse 5, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? Well, but if... If through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Here's what he's doing. He's quoting what people have said to him. 
And Jews who think they're going to heaven because they keep the law suddenly hear a message. And, and this should make you shudder. Let's pretend for a moment that you are these legalistic Jews who think God's going to accept you because you have behaved. Okay? I'm going to share something with you that's going to make you shudder. All right? Physically shudder. Gentiles are going to heaven too. You, you can cross your arms right now if you're really upset. And scowl. Now I know. And they're not even going to go to heaven because we teach them to keep the law of Moses. Hear me out. Hear me out. God's going to forgive them freely because of what Jesus did at the cross. Now all of, all of you arrogant, proud, racist, hypocritical Jews who think you have kept the law your whole life and you're going to strut up there on Judgment Day and show God all of your merit badges and he's going to welcome you in with Moses. Paul is like, you need God's forgiveness too. They need it and they're sinners and God's going to forgive them. You need forgiveness too. He's trying to tear down their pride of performance. God will judge everyone without partiality. So here this critic is attacking the idea of grace. Well, if you're saying unrighteous people are going to be forgiven by God because it shows his righteousness, then that means I can just keep sinning and God will just keep forgiving and, and I'll keep sinning and so, you, so your plan's bad. My plan's better. I'm just going to keep the law. Yeah, right. I'm just going to be perfect. No, you're not. So you can hear the argument here. The idea of grace offends a person who thinks that they're going to earn heaven. The idea that sinful people are going to heaven offends the person who thinks they're better than everyone else. So God will judge everyone without partiality. And this is what the gospel is all about. God welcoming in sinful people. You know, Jonah oversaw the greatest revival in biblical history. Over 100,000 people got saved in Jonah's preaching. And what did he do? He went and he cried about it. He went and he cried about it. Why? Michael Ramsden put it well. He said, Jonah hated that God still loved people who did terrible things. Jonah hated that God still loved people who did terrible things. The Jews couldn't stand the thought that filthy, wicked Gentiles were getting to heaven with them. This is our gracious God. He forgives the vilest offender. So number one, who will God accept into heaven? It has nothing to do with race, religion, nationality. Everyone is accountable to the law given to Israel. God will judge everyone without partiality. And, and this is true. It says, for then how could God judge the world? Meaning you can't wiggle out of the truth that God is going to judge the world. This question here is really important. Will God do something unfair? Right? Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel like God is unfair. God who would send people to hell is not a God I will serve. Maybe, maybe that's how you feel. God's going to do something wrong. He's going to judge the world wrong. He's going to get judgment wrong. That's what the Jews feared. They feared he was going to let Gentiles in. Get it wrong. The truth is this. this the Bible is very honest about this question. Is God just to punish the wicked? Abraham actually had to have a conversation with God before God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham said, will the judge of the earth do right? What if, what if there are 50 righteous people there? Will God sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And God says, no. Some people misinterpret that passage as saying, Abraham's negotiating. 
well, God, will you save him for 50? Will you save the city for 40? He's not negotiating. He's discovering the heart of God. That, that God would save a city or a world even if there was just one righteous person left, Noah. That's the heart of God. So what we're discovering here is that God's judgment is just and true and right, and therefore when he punishes the wicked, he's doing a right thing. Number one, who will God accept into heaven? Number two, jot this down, second question answered is, how bad is my sin problem? All right? if, if, if God will judge all of us, how bad is it, Doc? How bad is it? Look at verse 9. It says, what then? Are, are we Jews any better off? What, you're condemning us too? No, not at all. We're not any better off. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. We're all under the crushing weight of sin. And that's true of everyone in the room. We are all equally under the crushing, powerful weight of sin. I saw a picture from the Olympics in the past of a weightlifter who lifted up too much weight and the weight came back down and crushed him. He's okay. The picture looks scary. All right, but check it out. Here's a picture of this guy getting crushed under the weight that he tried to lift. This is Germany's Matthias Steiner. And look good, lifting and lifting, and then bam, it crushed him. Could have been fake. He could have cracked his neck, could have been paralyzed. It was horrible. He's on the ground for, they, they had to break the broadcast and take him to the hospital and check him all out. And listen, that picture shows your relationship to sin. Your sin is crushing you. You are under its crushing weight and you won't be okay. He walked away, you won't. This is our relationship to sin. We're under its crushing, punishing weight. Jew and Gentile. He now describes by looking back to many Old Testament verses what sin is and what it's like. Reading on, he says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in, the path, in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He quotes one Old Testament verse after another. This is what sin is. This is what sin is. This is what sin is. You've heard this all along. So let's sort these into a few points. Jot this down. How bad is my sin problem? We turn aside from seeking and knowing God. We turn aside from seeking and knowing God. It says we all fail to understand and seek God effectively. That comes from Ecclesiastes 7.20. We've turned aside and become worthless or unprofitable. So we don't understand God and we don't seek Him properly. We don't get Him and we don't find Him. Maybe you think, well, I've known God all my life. God's always been there for me. No, we don't get Him and we don't find Him naturally, whether you were raised in a Christian or a non-Christian home. We have wanderous hearts. We all fail to understand and seek God effectively, and we've turned aside. Therefore, we've, come worth, we've become worthless. That means that we, we lack the value that God intended us to have. We, we don't serve the purpose God intended for us to serve. We have fallen away from God. We've turned aside from seeking and knowing God. Therefore, it says no one is good enough to impress God. It says no one does good, not even one. This many people, this many people have done enough good to get into heaven. This many. This many. 
If you're banking on being a good enough person to get into heaven, you're not looking at the Bible's math. If you think you're a religious person, you've been kind to people. If you think you've done enough good to outweigh your bad, the Bible did a count and said this many people are good enough to get into heaven. Zero. No one is a good enough person to impress God. He quotes Psalm 14, 1 to 3, in talking about how all of this comes together. The truth is that our sin shows that we don't know God and we don't love Him and we don't fear Him. We don't know God, we don't love Him, we don't fear Him. That's what our sin shows. So we turn aside from seeking and knowing God. How bad is my sin problem? Drop this down, then it goes on to words. Our words are dark and deadly. Our words are dark and deadly. Our, we don't seek Him and know Him and our words are dark and deadly. Words are a big way we sin. He quotes Psalm 5.9 here and says, Their throat is an open grave. How does, God, how does God, when he looks at our words that come out of our mouth, describe what he hears? He reaches down into a cemetery, pulls up a casket, opens the top. Everybody say, ew. What, what if we all did that? church field trip, we'll go to a cemetery and we'll get the grave digger to dig one up, an old one, real, and open it up. And God says, your mouth, your <laughs> mouth. Is there any more of a disgusting way to describe the words that come out of our mouth? Like a rotting corpse, death, foul. Do you ever know somebody with bad breath? When I was in fourth grade, trying to figure, fifth grade, actually I think she followed us two years. This one teacher had tuna every day for lunch. <laughs> every day. It was her favorite. And she was a close talker. So she didn't stand up there and say, get your worksheet out. She'd come up real close to you and say, where's your worksheet? See <laughs> You're we all like, ooh, ooh, ooh. you didn't want to get in trouble because she would come real close and talk to you. Best behaved class. And that's tuna. All right. God describes what comes from our mouths and says it's like a corpse. Our words are dark and deadly. The idea here is that our words show that we are rotting spiritually and that we're causing death, right, to those who hear what we're saying. Our words are dark and deadly. Then, as if that's not enough, continues, the venom of asps is under their lips. Now that's a snake. What are their words like? This, this is from Psalm 143. Uh, it's like a forked tongue comes out and, and the venom is there. And when they talk, it's like they're biting you to kill you. <clears throat> Again, the effects of our words and the heart and sin behind them. So our family was, we don't watch TV a ton together, but we were watching TV, I think it was Friday night, and we're flipping through the channels and we come upon, I don't know if it was National Geographic or whatever, but there's this program called Animal Fight Night. Has anybody seen Animal Fight Night? You got to find it. It's one brawl between animals after another. And so we watched, and they got little animals fighting like an ant war. And then they got big animals fighting like lion versus crocodile. 
So we're all like, oh, who's going to win? And then it gets to Roadrunner versus, uh, versus Rattlesnake. Here's a picture. It's like Roadrunner versus, versus like Rattlesnake. Who's going to win? And, and the Rattlesnake, the Roadrunner is actually really good at picking up the snakes and smashing them down on the ground. But in this case, the Rattlesnake won. Because it bit him on the leg and then the Roadrunner was like, ow, ow, bam, dead. I would recommend that show if you're looking for a new show. Animal Fight Night. Now listen, that snake is you. It's how God evaluates your spiritual condition. Your words will condemn you on judgment day. Just the word portion of our judgment is going to take us out. Their throat is an open grave. Ew. They use their tongue to deceive, so referring to the deception and lying. Their venom of asps is under their lips, so deadly. Our words are so hurtful and dangerous. And then it continues. Verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Curses and bitterness. This is from Psalm 10. Full of. Mouth full. I saw this YouTube kid who can put 100 marshmallows in his mouth. Look, there's a picture. He can put 100 marshmallows in his mouth. His mother is so proud. A hundred marshmallows. His mouth is full of marshmallows. Our mouths are full of bitterness and curses. The abundance of our bitter words. This describes how we hurt other people with our words. We're bitter toward them, toward God. Our, Our words are sharp or sour, intending to injure people. This could even be like back then, people were superstitious, so it's like you could go... And you could kind of spiritually hex someone. You could like get the gods after them by actually putting a curse on them. You might not do that. You might not be like, I'm going to get Zeus after my enemy. But you might be just that, you know, I hope that you might be just as violent with what you wish on your enemies. And God is keeping track. Goes on to quote Isaiah 59, 7 to 8. So many Old Testament verses Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Jot this down. Our ways are violent and destructive. We turn aside from seeking and knowing God. Our words are dark and deadly. Our ways are violent and destructive. Violent and destructive. First our word talks about our our way first and then our words and and then back to our actions. Violent and destructive. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. So ruin is like destroying and misery is like depressing. The destruction and the depression that follows the choices of nations and the way of peace they have not known and there is no fear of God before their eyes. So we're talking about the feet now. Mouth, feet, hands, blood, ruin, misery. People want peace, don't they? Don't we want world peace? G20 is meeting right now. Here's a picture. The G20, they're all meeting. This is one of the most awkward pictures in all of history because none of these people are getting along. They're all going to pose for a picture, smile. And there you've got President Trump, the leader of China, and there's a big trade war breaking out there. The Saudi prince is, is there showing up. He's accused of murdering a journalist from the United States in a very grueling manner. Putin's there, and he's bullying Ukraine, and they're all like, cheese! Cheese! There's not peace on the earth. 
The way of peace they do not know. That was quoted from the Old Testament. It was true in the New, and it's still true today. The way of peace we do not know. Man's ways are violent and destructive, internationally and individually. Uh, look at the violence in Chicago, right? They jokingly call us Chirac. Uh, violence in Chicago, the violence, the bloodshed, the murder. People don't feel safe because of the violence. And you might be like, well, that's the city. We live in the suburbs. Is it any better in the suburbs? I met with the principal at Stagg High School several years ago. I went to Stagg High School, and so we were talking, and I had heard a, a terrible story. Maybe you heard about it. There were four students from Stagg and Oaklawn High School, high school students, who conspired to kill one of the boys' parents and take their money. The boy's marijuana crop got discovered by the parents, and he wasn't happy that they yelled at him. And so his, his desire then was to blow up, kill his parents, take the money. And he didn't just do it. He convinced three and four other boys to get in on it. And the promise was money. The promise was money. He convinced them his parents were the worst people on earth. And so one night, they had a code word. The concert is on. And they all got together. And they got together in his garage. And he didn't do it. He sent his friends upstairs with bats. And they killed his parents. This is in Palis. Killed his parents. Mom and dad. And then went back down to the garage where the son was counting out the money to give to his friends. This is in Palis. Who just killed his parents. And off they went. Horrible. And then as the police interrogated them later because they got caught, they were shocked at the hardness of the hearts of these suburban kids. And one kid didn't care, didn't care, didn't care until he found out that his friend got more money than him. Then he blew up. How much more? How much more? How much more? Then he cared. Listen, the problem is not out there. It's right next door. And if you're honest, that's us. We are violent and destructive. We feel that way whether we act on it or not. There is no fear of God. He's quoting Psalm 36, 1. Psalm 36, 1. Interesting, the principal said to me, well, we just want people to know that that's not Stag High School. That's not us. And I'm like, yes, it is. You can't get out of the problem that easy. And there are things that education can't solve in the human heart. That is us. And Paul's saying, this is our world. This is our heart. This is us. Number one, who will God accept into heaven has nothing to do with race, religion, nationality. Everyone is accountable to the law given to Israel. God will judge everyone without partiality. Number two, how bad's the problem? We turn aside from seeking and knowing God. Our words are dark and deadly. Our ways are violent and destructive. What hope do we have? Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is where he's been leading this whole time. Every mouth stopped, the whole world held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, your works won't save you. Your works won't save you. You will not do enough good to get into heaven. Your works won't save you. Jot this down. Number three, turn from works. Receive grace in Jesus Christ. Turn from works. This is all unpacking what we read in 
chapter 1, verse 16, where it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul just totally destroyed the people who think they're working their way to heaven, and he said the whole world will be silent before God on judgment day. You will have nothing to say when God hands you your judgment. Therefore, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus because it's by faith that you are going to be saved, not by works. This is his whole point. Turn from works, receive grace in Jesus Christ. Every mouth stopped. Imagine how creepy that would be if we all had an hour where no one on the planet could talk. That'd be weird. That'd be weird. That's judgment. I don't know how you imagine judgment being, but imagine the whole world silent, muted before God because they don't have anything to say. This isn't forced. This is a natural consequence. For by the works of the law, they won't be justified. Every mouth will be stopped, global silence, everyone held accountable, no one justified by their religious effort. One professor, Cranfield, said this, picture a defendant in court who, given the opportunity to speak in his own defense, is speechless because of the weight of evidence which has been brought against him. There you are on trial for murder. What do you have to say for yourself? That's you on judgment day. You'll have nothing to say because the case will be closed. God's not going to do something unfair. He's going to do something fair, and that is the bad news. We have to identify our true need as humans. We don't need to feel better about ourselves. We don't need to dismiss all of our sin as small. We don't need to blame our parents or our siblings for our misbehavior. We need to own the reality that our hearts are sinful without excuse, without defense before God, and beg Him for mercy. That's what this is showing us. Jot this down. Jesus alone can save you from judgment. Jesus alone. Martin Luther wrote about the law. Here's what he said. The principal point of the law is to make men not better, but worse. When you read the Bible, the Old Testament is not supposed to make you better. Worse. It shows unto them their sin, that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace and so come to that blessed Christ. The law is a mirror that shows us our sin. And it shows us God's provision. Jesus alone can save you from judgment. Jot this down. Jesus alone can give you peace with God forever. The way of peace has arrived. The way of peace has come from Jesus Christ. It's come down from heaven, which is what Christmas is all about. The gospel is an incredible deal. It's an outrageous deal. Heaven free forever. Heaven free forever. No cost to you, but it cost God his son. He paid it all. I read a headline this week. Bank of America, ATM in Texas, mistakenly spits out $100 bills. Customers can keep it. Just in time for the holiday season, a malfunctioning Bank of America ATM in Texas early Monday dispensed $100 bills instead of $10 bills, causing several fights to break out. My turn. And the bank eventually telling its lucky customers they can keep it. There was a line at the bank in North Harris County when word spread about the faulty machine. Houston's ABC 13 reported. A customer attempted to withdraw $20 around 11 p.m. The machine spit out a $100 bill. When the man posted about it on social media, a crowd rushed to the ATM. 
A few fights ensued when people waited in line to make money from the ATM glitch. The commotion occurred over a roughly two-hour period. Before authorities arrived, they dispersed the crowd and shut down the machine. Bank of America issued a statement on Monday in response to the error. This was an incident at a single ATM. Uh, it loaded the vendor incorrectly loaded $100 bills instead of $10 bills. We have resolved the matter. Customers will be able to keep the additional money. If you found out there was an ATM down the street where you asked for 10 and you got $100 and the bank was going to let you keep it, would you get in line? Would you get in line? More than you deserve? Free? Would you get in line? You'd be a fool not to. What if next to that ATM there was an ATM that said heaven for free? You have to turn from your sins, leave that behind, and you get heaven for free. You'd be a fool not to. You'd be a fool not to. And God is offering you the free gift of eternal life. You can't earn it. You'll never deserve it. If you open up your checkbook and try and write a check to cover all of it, you'll never, you'll never earn it. You'll never deserve it. But when you humble yourself and say, what a wretched man I am. I have broken God's law. I am guilty. I deserve to go to hell. But God paid for me. Jesus paid for me. Then you receive the free gift of eternal life, and God welcomes you into his family forever. I want to give you the chance to receive that free gift of eternal life right now to turn from your weak works and to trust Jesus as Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, I know there are some here this morning who think that they have lived a good life. But based on what they heard in the Bible about how our words will be judged, our attitudes, our actions, help them to drop that false claim. Lord, we're, no, we're, we're not righteous. No one is righteous, not even one. I pray for the people, Lord, who came today who would think they're religious people, that they have been religious enough to go to heaven. Help them to see that that won't save them. I pray for people who think, Lord, that you'll just look past their sin and forgive them. Show them that that's not the way it works. A sacrifice must be made. A just God of all the earth must punish wrongdoing. But I pray that all of us would look to the cross where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the sinless Savior, gave himself up freely paid our sins in full, died in our place and rose again, and now he rules heaven. I pray that there would be people reaching out right now, asking for the free gift of eternal life, turning away from their deeds, their religion, their acts, turning away from those because those are filthy rags in your presence and claiming the free gift of eternal life. May they pray in their own hearts saying, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Wash away all of my sins. Jesus, save me. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name.